What's going on, folks? Good seeing you. It's been a minute. Glad to be back. Glad to see you all. And it's lovely outside. Man, it is lovely outside. It's a good day. Well, uh, if you don't know who I am, my name is Chris Wold. Uh, I'm at a, a Trails Church in the southeast of Winnipeg, and uh, I'm just so grateful to be here this morning, be able to preach to you guys, um, dive back into Matthew. Well, uh, I do want to apologize. Um, my allergies really kicked me in the pants this week, and so if I sound congested and that's annoying, I'm sorry. <laughs> I can't really do much about it. So we're just going to tally-ho and go forth and just hopefully uh, the Lord will just continue to sustain me physically as, uh, as, we, pre- as we hear from his word this morning. Well, um, I want to start off this morning with a question, a very important question. That is, how do we measure greatness? Our culture's standard of greatness almost goes without saying. Greatness is measured by success. Um, Well, that begs the question, how do we measure success? (laughs) Again, our culture's standard of success is pretty self-evident. Success is measured by money, skill, prestige, accolades, clout, whatever other quantifiable barometers you want to toss in there. However, it is evident in Scripture that God does not measure success in any of these ways. And correspondingly, God does not measure greatness by the standard of success. So how does God measure greatness? How does God measure greatness? Well, this is a pretty massive question. I mean, entire books have been dedicated to answering this single question. We could do an entire sermon series on this question alone, and I could easily spend the rest of our time discussing the multifaceted ways we can tackle this topic. But that's not what we're doing today. (laughs) We We have a text to study and understand. But unsurprisingly, our text today in Matthew 11 will in fact elucidate and explain one of the ways Jesus tackles the answer to this question. So we have a lot to uncover here, folks. Here at Matthew 11, verses 1 through 19, it's a dense text. It is a doozy of a text, I tell you. That raises several important theological questions, several of which are very difficult to answer. However, by the end of our time today, we will have addressed this question of greatness and how it should shape our lives, our purpose, and our expectations. That being said, let us turn to our text today. So I ask that you open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11, and I ask that you would also stand for the reading of God's word. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go into the wilderness to see? 
a reed shaken by the wind? What then do you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than even he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet, Wisdom is justified by her deeds. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak even today by it. Father, I ask now that you would give us grace to understand and power by the Spirit to live differently in light of what is, is said here. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. All right. Let's do it. So before we dive into our text today, let us reorient ourselves to where we are in Matthew's gospel. So last time you were all in Matthew, you finished up uh, another major section of this story. You may recall that Matthew has organized his gospel with these five major discourse or teaching sections. And in between each of these discourses, there are these larger narrative sections. And you may recall that in each of these larger sections, Matthew is making one unified argument about Jesus as the Messiah. In chapter 10, you all saw the second major discourse or teaching section in which Jesus was preparing and teaching his disciples before he sent them out to preach the gospel of the kingdom throughout the cities of Israel. This means that today, in starting chapter 11, we are beginning the next major narrative section in the gospel of Matthew, which is chapters 11 and 12. Now, in, this, uh, in the last narrative section, in chapters 8 and 9, what was the main point that Matthew was making about Jesus? His authority. Yes, Matthew was presenting these stories of miracles and interactions to demonstrate Jesus' power and authority ultimately over all things. However, in this larger section, we see a major shift in tone. Whereas in chapters 8 and 9, the tonal quality of the story was powerful and triumphant. Well, here in chapters 11 and 12, we notice the chord shifts from major to minor, full of tension. Well, why is this? What signals this change? Well, so far in Matthew's account of Jesus' ministry, Jesus has come proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, that the, king, the kingdom is in fact near. And his miracles and his teaching 
He is presenting himself to the people of Israel as their Messiah. But as we have already noted in chapters 8 and 9, tension has started to mount as opposition to Jesus grows. And so by the time we make it to chapter 12, we will see this culminate in Jesus' rejection by the religious leaders as the Messiah. Therefore, in this section, we see that Matthew is presenting the mounting opposition to Jesus' kingdom program, culminating in his formal rejection by the leaders of Israel in chapter 12. Previously in my time with you, I have mentioned uh, that there is an importance of recognizing the programmatic nature of the Messiah's ministry, the programmatic nature of his ministry. Meaning that Jesus, he's not arbitrary, he's not random. He does what he does for important and specific reasons. Also, it means that the nature and focus of his ministry changes for specific and important reasons. And so we will see as we continue to study Matthew's gospel that Jesus' ministry as the Messiah makes a shift after his rejection by the nation's leaders. What was once the declaration of the gospel of the kingdom becomes pronouncement of judgment against the nation for their rejection of him as their Messiah. Where he once taught more clearly in sermons in chapter 13, the third discourse section, Jesus teaches instead in parables. Where before his ministry was public and gathering many followers, after his rejection, Jesus begins to focus more on intimate settings with smaller groups and, or just with his disciples. Where before his miracles were many and public, after his rejection, Jesus says that the next sign the Pharisees will see will be the sign of Jonah, a reference to his resurrection. Now I want to clarify something very important here, folks. Yes, Jesus' ministry focus changes or looks different after he is rejected. However, by saying this, I am by no means saying that Jesus was somehow caught off guard or that he was altering his plans unexpectedly. Why? Well, because Jesus' rejection by Israel as their Messiah was always part of the plan. It was always part of the plan. We need not look further than texts like Isaiah 53, in which we read the clearest prophecy of Jesus' death and substitutionary atonement for sin. Jesus always knew exactly what kind of Messiah he would be and knew exactly why he would come. But as we read in the Gospels and we would read further in the book of Acts, we learn that there are many things the apostles did not understand about their Bibles. They knew that the Messiah would one day come and announce the coming kingdom of God. But they did not understand that this Messiah would be rejected by the nation, ultimately killed, but would arise and would lead to the blessing and salvation, not just for Israel, but for all the nations. They did not understand this. The disciples, even after Pentecost, we read in Acts that there were many things they struggled to understand. That the Spirit, in His mercy, revealed to the early church for their and our understanding. But in this time of transition, during the Messiah's ministry, 
from the old covenant age to the new covenant, there was still much hidden from the understanding of even those who followed Jesus. And it is from this idea that I now want to move into our text today. So we see in verse 1 that after Jesus sends out the 12, that he goes on to preach and teach elsewhere. And so begins our scene in verse 2. John the Baptist, he's been thrown in jail. And he's been there for some time now, evidently. And he has heard about Jesus' ministry. But what he has heard has troubled him. So what does he do? He told some of his disciples who were likely caring for him while he was in prison. He told them to go to Jesus and ask him a question. And so in verse 3, John asked Jesus by way of his disciples this question. Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? And you may hear that, and you might be thinking, Whoa! Whoa! Hold the phone. John, the John, the Baptist, is doubting whether or not Jesus is the Messiah? Really? But he's John the Baptist. Super prophet extraordinaire. You're telling me he's questioning? Yeah. He is. John is in prison and he... He's struggling and he's hearing about what is going on with Jesus' ministry and he begins to doubt. But you may be thinking, no way, Chris. This is John the Baptist. Come on. John the ba- This is the guy who said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You're telling me that guy is doubting who Jesus is? But hey, you, ra- you raise a good point. You raise a good point, folks. Jesus did understand that Jesus... John did understand that Jesus is the sacrificial lamb of God who would die for the sin of the world. And in this way, John understood more about Jesus than anyone else prior to his death. Why is that? Because what was the fundamental confusion about the Messiah, even by the twelve? Even though they eventually recognized that Jesus was the Messiah, they did not understand what kind of Messiah he was. That the Messiah... The Messiah that they and the people at large were expecting was a conquering king, not a suffering servant. And yet John understood that the Messiah would come and eventually suffer and die. And it also wasn't that John didn't understand who he was. John knew exactly who he was. As we read in Matthew 3 that he knew that he was the voice crying in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord. He knew he was the Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 messenger sent as the forerunner of the Messiah. So if John knew who he was and he understood the kind of Messiah Jesus would be, then why is he questioning here? Hey, good question. Well, what did we say was the main theme of this narrative section in chapters 11 and 12, it's about Jesus' rejection by the people of Israel. This is ultimately, that is why John begins to doubt if Jesus really is the Christ. Why do I say this? 
Well, first of all, John is in prison. His ministry ain't going so hot. And even though he understood that Jesus would be the sacrificial lamb of God, what else did he expect in Jesus' ministry? Well, let's look back at Matthew chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. There, John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So we see here that another part of John's expectations of Jesus' ministry did also include coming judgment. But what didn't he expect? He didn't expect that the Messiah would be rejected by the people. John is there, languishing in prison. He's probably wondering, all right, when's Jesus going to get the show on the road here? Well, John's ministry garnered notice and notoriety. His message of repentance that he proclaimed was still largely rejected. And there he sits in prison, the rejected messenger. And what does he hear about Jesus? What does this rejected messenger hear? That the one he prepared the way for is also being rejected. It wasn't supposed to be like this, Jesus. I'm in, I'm in prison here. Did I fail? I did the best I could preparing for your coming. Why am I still here, Lord? Why aren't the people coming to you? Why aren't they repenting of sin and worshiping you as the Messiah? This wasn't what I was expecting, Lord. Are you really the Messiah after all? But Jesus knew. Jesus knew he would be rejected. And even before he is formally rejected by the Pharisees in chapter 12, we see here in our text today and in chapter 11 elsewhere that Jesus is already discussing that he has largely been rejected by the people. For what does it say right after our text for today in verses 20 through 24? What does Jesus do? He pronounces woes. Woes against the cities in which he did the majority of his mighty works. Because why? Because they did not repent. They did not come to him. They rejected him. And even though Jesus understood this, John did not. And in view of his unmet expectations about Jesus' kingdom program, he begins to doubt. And I know some of you still might find that to be extremely uncomfortable. You maybe are reacting negatively to the idea that John the Baptist had doubts that Jesus was the Messiah. In fact, there are other interpretations of this interaction that alter the reason for John's question. I believe because they cannot accept the fact that the Messiah's forerunner would genuinely ask this question. And I understand why it would be a hard pill to swallow. 
I don't, I don't mean that callously. It's a hard pill to swallow. After all, Jesus says in verse 11 here that up to this point in history that John the Baptist was the greatest man to have ever lived. That's, that's crazy. That's a, like, talk about a declaration, people. All right, Chris, it kind of sounds like you dug yourself quite a hole here. How, the, how does this square up? The greatest man to have ever lived, according to Jesus himself, had doubts. Yes. Why not? Because doubt means a lack of faith, and a lack of faith is sin? So, he was the greatest man to have ever lived. But he was still the greatest man. Man. Not perfect or impervious, but broken, sinful, doubting man. And if that makes you uncomfortable in any way, if you struggle to synthesize the tension that is there together, good. It should make you uncomfortable. Why? Because it means that you are not measuring greatness by how Jesus defines it, but by some other definition of greatness. Evidently, Jesus does not measure greatness by how little one doubts or whether or not your suffering causes you to question who he is. And that is good news, brothers and sisters. Let this serve as a reminder to you that even the greatest man who ever lived questioned who Jesus said he was while he was in the midst of great suffering. And so when you are in the midst of great suffering and you begin to question God's goodness, when you begin to wonder if you have failed and you struggle to have faith in who Jesus says he is, remember this. That salvation is not determined on the basis of the intensity or clarity of the faith exercised. But on the basis of the strength of the object we have placed our faith in. As Don Carson said, it is not the intensity of our faith, but the object of our faith that saves. Our king is merciful, brothers and sisters. He is merciful. It says in the little letter of Jude to have mercy on those who doubt. And Jesus certainly extends mercy to his doubting, imprisoned, and rejected forerunner. Let's look now at how Jesus responds to John's question. What what doesn't he do? He doesn't condemn him for his question. He doesn't ridicule him for his question. He doesn't say, you should know better. What does he do? John is doubting who Jesus is. So Jesus reminds him of what he has done and what he has said. And not only that, but in doing so, he is pointing John not only to Jesus' own actions, but back to the scriptures. How do we see this? Well, I've mentioned previously to you in our study of chapter 9 that the miracles and actions of Jesus are not arbitrary, but are mentioned specifically to demonstrate the fulfillment of prophecy, of what the signs of the Messiah would be, 
And so Jesus, in quick succession, strings together several references to prophecies written in the book of Isaiah, demonstrating that he has done exactly what the prophets said the Messiah would do. Remember, John knows his Bible. So Jesus, in his response to John's doubting who he is, points John to his mighty works and to the scriptures to remind him of what God has said the Messiah's ministry would be like. Now, what I'm about to say is not, it's not the main point here, but I would be remiss not to draw some application for us out of this exchange so that we would understand that this response of Christ also is our remedy to the doubting. When our circumstances and suffering bring us to a place where we begin to question who Jesus is. Do not think he will respond with harshness or condemnation. That is not the God we serve. Ask him. Ask him. Ask him. Jesus, are you who you say you are? Really? You have proven to your, yourself to me before, and I feel ashamed to ask you now, but please prove yourself to me again. And he will, because he will remind you of what he has done, and he will point you back to the scriptures to remind you of who he is, what he has done, and what he will do, because he is the one who is faithful and true. He will keep you. He will keep you. He promised he will. Your greatness in the kingdom is not measured by the intensity of your faith. That wasn't the case for John and it, wasn't the, and it won't be the case for you. And Jesus ends his message to John in verse 6. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now this verb in the passive voice can also be translated, who does not stumble over me. Now this word also makes reference to Isaiah chapter 8 verses 14 and 15 in which it is said that the Messiah will be a rock of stumbling and many in Israel will stumble because of him. Here Jesus is reminding John not to stumble over him because he isn't meeting his expectations of Jesus' kingdom program. But what happens next here after the disciples of John leave? Jesus immediately turns to the crowds and begins to speak to them concerning John. And what does he do? So in verses 7 through 15, Jesus rises to John's defense. He defending the reputation and legitimacy of his ministry and confirming his identity not only as a prophet but of the messenger who would come in the spirit and power of Elijah. Even though this interaction may have been private between John's disciples and himself, Jesus wastes no time cutting the rumor mill off at the pass. He reminds the crowds and confirms the, le leg the legitimacy of John's prophetic ministry. And he quotes Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 and specifically explains that he is more than a prophet. And by the time he gets to verse 14, that he is indeed the Elijah-like messenger 
who had come to prepare the way for the Lord. But more than just confirming John's identity as the Elijah-like messenger, he explains the significance of John's role in redemptive history. And it is at this point that Jesus says he is more than a prophet as he is a fulfillment of prophecy himself. And that he is not just greater than any prophet, but that he is the greatest man to have ever lived. I mean, wow. But how, how does Jesus make this claim? On what basis can Jesus call John the greatest? Questions needing to be answered, yes. But what is more surprising to me is that Jesus then follows up by saying that for all John's greatness, even the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Say what? That's crazy. So what what does that mean? That John is the greatest man to have ever been born up to this point in history. But looking forward, that even the least of all the kingdom citizens is greater than John. How? How is Jesus measuring greatness? Well, to answer that question, we need to figure out why Jesus is saying John is so great. What makes John the greatest man to have ever lived? So let's tackle that first. And we see in the following verses that Jesus answers that question. And he explains the significance of John's role in redemptive history and the significance of his ministry. Look with me again at verse 12, folks. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. Now, bear with me here, folks, because this is a particularly troublesome verse. In the original language, there is a grammatical ambiguity here. The verb translated as has suffered violence can be translated two different ways because the grammar in the Greek is uncertain. It could be also translated as has been coming violently or is coming forcefully, which in the ESV or in other translations is represented by a footnote. They make it clear that there's a footnote there, that there's an ambiguity there, that they could go either way. Now, the vast majority of these kinds of difficulties in translation, of which there are several, do not have nearly as significant an impact on interpretation as it does here. But this is one of those cases where the meaning of the verse hinges upon how you deal with this ambiguity. And I'm telling you this not just to show off my Greek sleuthing skills, whatever they're worth, or to bore you, because you may be like, why does this matter at all? But to sort of pull back the curtain here and tell you plainly what kind of tools in our Bible study tool belts are required to figure these kinds of problems out. And you don't need to be a Greek scholar to do so. I'm not like a wizard up here. I'm not, I'm not turning lead to gold. 
you can understand the scriptures too. Because the scholars, they've already told you that there is an alternate translation of the verb in this verse. So now we use the tools at our disposal to understand it. Well, how do we do this? Well, I think we should examine the context, maybe, and see what might make sense. That That sound okay? So the other translation might read, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing, and forceful men lay hold of it. This would suggest that Jesus is saying that despite opposition, the kingdom is triumphantly forging on ahead in its advance, and it is the bold or the forceful that will grab onto it. But what has been our context here? John is wrestling with it, and Jesus is anticipating it. The rejection of the kingdom by the people of Israel. John is doubting because of the very fact that he doesn't see that the kingdom has been advancing. And yes, while it is true, it is true elsewhere in Scripture that the kingdom goes forth despite forces opposing it, that is not what is being said here. And we can see that from understanding the the context. Indeed, Jesus, by saying that the kingdom... Instead, Jesus, by saying that the kingdom has suffered violence from the day of John until now, is that the kingdom program has faced severe opposition. And the next phrase explains that opposition. That the violent have tried to take it. They have tried to seize the kingdom for themselves. The violence that the kingdom has primarily suffered so far is opposition, specifically from those like the Pharisees who desire to take the reins of the kingdom for themselves. And in a more literal sense, the movement of the kingdom program has suffered violence. I mean, John was thrown in prison. And what did Jesus warn his disciples of in the very last chapter before he sent them out? That persecution will come. So buckle up, buttercup. And it is this very opposition against the message of John that, against the message of the kingdom that John is stumbling over. So why is Jesus saying this? Because the opposition and ultimate rejection of the message does not invalidate the ministry nor the significance of the messenger. I'll say that again. Because the opposition and ultimate rejection of the message does not invalidate the ministry nor the significance of the messenger. Nor does the rejection of John's message nor the rejection of the kingdom come as a surprise to Jesus. And even though Jesus was talking about this as it stands within the context of his ministry, I would say by way of application that the same dynamic of the kingdom program is true even today. I think that's a pretty evident thing. The citizens of the kingdom suffer great violence in this age. Think of our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world. But this violence against the kingdom does not come as a surprise to God, nor does it invalidate the message of the kingdom that Jesus is indeed king. 
and the kingdom continues to move forward. Despite this opposition against it at all sides, at all levels, the kingdom program moves on. And also in this, we see today that there are those who would seek to seize the reins of the direction of the kingdom and co-opt its movement forward for themselves, desiring to take control of it and twist it for their own advantage. I don't think we need to think very long and hard about all the ways in which people have tried to twist the message of the kingdom and tried to use it for their own advantage. These things characterize the experience of the citizens of the kingdom today. As Christians bear witness to the message of the kingdom, they face opposition and often violently. And violent men try to distort the message in order to subvert the purpose and direction of God's people. So the opposition against the kingdom was expected and has continued to be so. Look at verse 13. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, because it is challenging to accept, he is Elijah who is to come. Here Jesus affirms John's role in redemptive history to clarify that even though John's message has largely been rejected, it does not compromise his identity as the Elijah-like messenger. And furthermore, the opposition against the kingdom and the rejection of the message does not come as a surprise to Jesus' kingdom program. And it is in these last few verses, in 16 through 19, that Jesus uses an illustration of playing children to explain how the people have responded to the Messiah and his forerunner. Let us read this again. Verse 16. But what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they said to him, He has a demon. Son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Jesus uses this imagery of children playing together in the marketplace. And what they are saying to one another is a reference to the games that they're playing. Jesus is alluding to these uh, weddings and funerals that the kids in the marketplace would play as their game. But the problem with these kids is that they don't want to play the game. We played the wedding song. You didn't dance. We played the dirge. You're supposed to mourn. The kids don't want to play the game. They aren't responding as they ought. And they aren't satisfied with either game. They didn't respond to John's solemn message of repentance. They said he had a demon. And they didn't respond to Jesus' joyful, wedding-like pronouncement of the coming kingdom. They called him a glutton. The people have not responded to either message, John's or Jesus's, as they should. Like children, they simply do not want to play the game by the rules. And they are going to throw a tantrum. But again, this does not come as a surprise to Jesus. 
nor should it come as a surprise to us. Because John's rejection and suffering anticipates the eventual rejection and suffering of Jesus as well. There is a reason we use the phrase, don't kill the messenger. They literally killed the messenger. And since they killed the messenger, it should be no surprise that they would do the same to the one he was preparing the way for. Additionally, no servant is greater than his master. Our Savior was rejected. Rejected by the very people who were longing and waiting for him to come. Should we be surprised when we are rejected just the same? No. John and Jesus both proclaimed the message of the coming kingdom and their message was rejected and they were killed. Let us not be surprised when our proclamation of the coming kingdom is also met with rejection and opposition. For in doing so, we are even greater than John himself. That's right. (laughs) I thought I wasn't going to go back to that, huh? Why does Jesus call John the greatest man to have ever been born? John is the last in a long line of prophets. He is the forerunner of the Messiah, the one who signaled the dawning of a new age. But it isn't because of these distinctions that Jesus calls John the greatest. It isn't because of what that role was. It is because of what that role means. He was the prophet who had the privileged distinction of most clearly and directly pointing to the Messiah to say, this is the guy, this is the one whom all the prophets have testified. It's him. John had the greatest privilege and honor over all the prophets of old to point others to the Messiah most clearly and most directly. And it is in this way that Jesus says that even the least in the kingdom is greater than John. Because pointing backwards to what Jesus the Messiah has done is an even greater distinction than pointing forward to what he will do. We are greater than John because we are able to point to Jesus and his work even more directly and clearly than he was. John's message was to proclaim that the king was coming. Our greater message that we get to proclaim is that the king has come. He has lived died and risen and he is coming again to establish his kingdom on this earth. God does not measure greatness by our success. How does God measure greatness? To put it simply, by obedience. God measures greatness by obedience. So then, What is your job, Christian? 
to proclaim the message that the king has come. The response, that's up to God. John was the greatest man to have ever lived up to that point because he was obedient to proclaim the message he was bidden to proclaim. And the rejection of his message did not negate or tarnish his greatness. Therefore, like John and Jesus, even in the rejection we receive, our obedience to proclaim the message of the kingdom and the rejection that we might receive, it does not tarnish our great position of privilege in God's kingdom. God has called you to be obedient, not to be successful. He is the one in charge of the response. Not you, not me, not anybody. He is the one in charge of that. We indeed have a greater, more privileged position than John and all the prophets, not because of the response we receive, but because we have been obedient to clearly proclaim the message. Repent and believe. The king has come. Amen? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us this great distinction, this great honor, that we somehow in this world are considered greater than even John. Lord, may we be reminded and comforted that even when we struggle and doubt in the midst of suffering, that you are a kind and merciful Savior who understands. You understand that we will struggle with the rejection. We will struggle with the opposition that your kingdom faces on this earth. But Lord, please help us to not be surprised. And in that, in that lack of surprise and that having our expectations rightly oriented, that we would not be dismayed, that we would continue to go forth, that we would continue to bear witness to the message that you have indeed come and that we would trust you with the response, that we would not see our success as how those respond to our message but that we would be obedient and we would be content in our obedience because we want to do what you have called us to do because we love you, Lord. Lord, we thank you that you've given us this privilege to do so. And I ask that you would equip and empower and convict these Christians to go forth and proclaim that message in their lives. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. stand with me with us.
It's been great to be with you this, this morning. And uh, while I do have to run pretty quick, I would love if you uh, had any questions or you want to chat with me afterwards, I'll stick around for a bit. But before we go, our charge today is this. In our text today, we see Jesus address John the Baptist's doubts in view of his unmet expectations of Jesus' kingdom program. Despite this, Jesus confirms that his own actions point to the prophetic expectations of the Messiah's ministry. And yet Jesus also makes clear that this in no way compromises John's identity as the prophesied Elijah-like messenger, nor does the rejection of his message come as a surprise to Jesus' kingdom program. As the rejection and suffering of the Messiah's forerunner anticipates the eventual rejection and uh, and suffering of the Messiah as himself. In the same way, we ought not be surprised when the proclamation of the coming kingdom is met with rejection and opposition and even leads to our suffering. Why? Because, Because like John and Jesus, our greatness is not measured by the response we receive, but by our plain proclamation of the message that the king has indeed come. So I leave you with this for your benediction today. John 20, verse 21. Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Go serve your king.